We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. October is here again, and that means it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. But it's a topic we should be talking about all year round, as it remains the most common cancer diagnosed in women worldwide. I'm Lisa Fielding, sitting in for Craig Delamore, and today we talk breast cancer awareness, prevention, and the continued fight for a cure. You're listening to At Issue. Our guests today include Tiasha Bailey, Executive Director of Coleman Chicago, Dr. Seema A. Khan, a Coleman Scholar, Professor of Surgery at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine, and co-leader of the Cancer Prevention Program at the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, and Angela Waller, breast cancer survivor and Coleman volunteer. Welcome, ladies. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, so we talk about Breast Cancer Awareness Month every October, Mm -hmm. but you call it Breast Cancer Action Month. Tell us what that means, Tiasha. Yeah, so for us, action means going out and making sure that you spread the word about the importance of early detection. Bring a friend with you. If you have not received your your annual mammogram, make sure you bring someone with you. Talk to your doctor to make sure you know your and understand your family history and your risk for breast cancer. So, Education is one part of it, but it's all about action to make a difference. What have you found? We think that all the, all us women know that we're supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. But when you go out in the community, what do you find? Mm-hmm. Do you find there are socioeconomic barriers? Are there insurance issues? What have you found? And have we come farther in years in getting women in there every year? So I would say we see a lot of that. We see a lot of women who um, are concerned about their ability to be able to afford services. We also see that there is not a lot of um, knowledge around where to go in your community or in other communities to access those services in a timely fashion. And there's just apprehension about, you know, accessing the the system and getting the care that you need. Um, But there's a lot of People, women, men alike who are very passionate about this issue, who are advocates and champions. Um, And Coleman Chicago is also a resource to be able to help make those meaningful connections and those warm handoffs so people can get what they need when they need it. Have you found any miseducation about, oh, it's going to take five months to get in? Or, you know, what have you found about people's excuses that, you know, prevent them from getting in there like they're supposed to? Um. I, I mean, the, their excuses, some of them are re- the reality for some individuals, mm-hmm. right? There are some real challenges and some barriers um, that we do not take lightly. I think it's important for people to know their risk and talk to a primary care physician. A lot of the misinformation comes from people who are not clinicians, right, and just spreading what they know. And so we want to make sure that people get plugged in. And I believe they're making machines that are more comfortable, right? That's I've heard what about they say. Sometimes yes. people say it, it's can be it can be painful. Mm-hmm. What do you know about that? Angela, it can be uncomfortable. Your, yeah, but at the same time, the uncomfortable um, time that you spend on a mammography machine can definitely outweigh any type of diagnosis or anything that will come up if you do not to get screened. Of course, so it definitely makes a difference. Angela, mm-hmm. tell us about yourself and why how you ended up here. Sure. I was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 34. I lost both my parents to cancer, actually two months apart in 99. 
my dad first at 48 of lung cancer and my mom at 46 from breast cancer. And I found my lump in what I call a routine spot check because I knew of my family history and I actually found a lump in in my armpit. Mm. And when I found the lump, I was 60 days into my current role at a, at a job years ago. This was in 2006 and had to wait 30 more days in order to access my health insurance. But when I finally mm. was able to visit with my physician, she did give a clinical breast exam and found a mass in my left breast. And so I went through having to get an, um, uh, an ultrasound mammogram, the biopsy, the full nine, and it came back as infiltrating ductal carcinoma, which was triple negative. I had to go immediately into uh, treatment. I got a second opinion at Rush, though, and so after that, it was just nine months of of continuous treatment, a lumpectomy, chemotherapy, and radiation. When did you know that? Yes, this isn't my family, and yes, I'm in my 30s, which we all think were immortal at that point. When did you kind of you were educated about what you needed to do, what you found, what you did? Do you remember going back to how young you were when you knew? that you had to be extra vigilant because of your family ties? After my mom passed, I was actually 27 years old and I got a mammogram shortly after that. And I have to admit that I was not uh, adherent in terms of getting one every year, but I knew that I needed to start my screening early because of my mom. And subsequently the cancer was found when I was 34. Wow. Hard to explain what that felt like. How do you tell people now how you handled that emotionally? It's a lot I mean, to deal with. Definitely leaning on my faith, my family, my church home was an amazing part of my journey. I continued to work. My coworkers were amazing. They prayed for me every day. So it's really about having that support system, that village. And unfortunately, some women don't have that. Mm-hmm. So hopefully there's organizations like Coleman and others who actually provide that emotional support that women may particularly need in addition to the resources and education so that you're not caught up in that fog of trying to get what you need in order to be well. And what was your feelings going through Did you have hope immediately? Did your doctor say, listen, you caught this early. We're going to be fine. When she told me I had breast cancer, I literally had an out-of-body experience where I saw the top of my head, the fluorescent lights from all the way down. And I felt the warmth of the tears on my cheeks. And then I came back into myself and I looked down and I saw her feet and I said, cute shoes. And it was just that that jolting of it. I said, okay, Angela, let's get it together. We need to do do what we need to do. And I went through my treatment. And you had obviously a different experience than your mother. Was she, she was not able to catch it early. What was her situation? It, it, now that I think about it and understand it, it was basically implicit bias. She had a mammogram done and there was a spot on her mammogram and a white male physician told her, don't worry about it. This was when in the 70s, 80s? When, this was 90s? in the early 90s. So mm-hmm. it had to be, I think she was diagnosed in 94. Okay. Huh. Yeah. That's and it turned out to, to be turned out to be breast cancer. And yeah. when it came, initially when she was diagnosed, she had her treatment. It came back as metastatic. And mm-hmm. even when me and my aunt, who's a physician assistant, really not knowing the landscape of breast cancer, actually had a conversation with her physician and his words to me, your mother has metastatic breast cancer. She's going to die. Mm -hmm. Who does that? Right. 
So this this was in the early 90s. And, and not to say that things have changed dramatically because you still have implicit bias in, in the in the healthcare system. You still have structural barriers that are impacting how women receive care. So that's really the issue, especially of, of me and why I, I founded my organization, Elevated Survivorship, because it's about women being empowered, getting education and understanding that there's more that they can do after their breast cancer diagnosis. Dr. Khan, let's talk about uh, family history. Um, is genetic testing still a thing? Do people do that? Is that accurate for the BRCA gene, that kind of thing. Could she have done that early on to find out, even though she knows that it was in her family? Let's talk about genetic testing. So we'll talk about genetic testing. It's a very important area, but but I just want to um, add to, to what Angela said about mammography. The discomfort of mammography is a reality, but uh, it's it's helpful to understand that the discomfort actually has an objective, and the point is to compress the breast tissue. Because the clearer, the, the, the greater the compression and that the thinner that the technologist can squeeze the breast so that the x-ray has to travel through a thin amount of tissue rather than a large thickness, uh, the picture will be better and more informative. Sure. So, yes, it is unfortunate that mammograms hurt, but um, it may help Small to price. know that there is a point to, to the compression. Uh, so I think genetic testing is an extremely topical area right now. It's becoming more and more so. Uh, there's a lot of science that has uncovered not only the two genes that are well known about, the BRCA1 and the BRCA2, but in addition, uh, there are a number of other genes that can be abnormal and can increase risk of breast cancer and other cancers. So uh, if we had seen Angela before she discovered her lump, and if that was within the next last 10 years, this has been evolving over a period of time, uh, the question would have been, your mother was in her 40s when she had breast cancer. Is she still alive? And can she be tested? Because if you're talking to an unaffected person who hasn't been diagnosed with cancer, then the best advice is to... Uh, ask them to go to the person who has been diagnosed in the family, and that person is the most informative one to test. Uh, For someone who doesn't have a surviving relative who's been diagnosed with breast cancer, or this applies to other cancers too, but that relative is not available for testing, then the person who's concerned about it, if they're a first-degree relative, should certainly consider testing. There are some techniques that are being developed where one could actually go to the tissue of the deceased relative and retrieve Mm -hmm. that from the hospital archives and test that for gene abnormalities. Uh, That's not in uh, general clinical use at the moment, but it's a method that's under development, that's being considered, that is available in some places and would actually really extend the accuracy of testing because, again, it's if, if you test the person who's had cancer, it provides a lot more information for the entire family than testing someone who hasn't had cancer. Sure. So you do the test. What do you do? Okay, you come out positive with a BRCA gene or something. That That's when, as a woman, as a young woman, uh, probably when you have it in your family, what kind of decisions do you have to make if, if, if you now know that it's in your family, right. you have the gene? So I think those decisions are very age-dependent. The right decision uh, is different for women in different phases of their lives. 
So uh, we now are seeing women who are tested in their mid-20s because there's mm-hmm. a known gene abnormality in the family. Uh, and for those women who are still studying, who are in the beginning of their careers, who haven't established their partnerships yet, for those women, the right solution is different than someone who's in her later 30s has had her family and is now really considering her options in terms of how she can best reduce her risk. So for the woman in her mid-20s, in general, the women we see are uh, are quite comfortable with surveillance, and the surveillance involves uh, breast MRI. So the breast MRI is done every year uh, from mid-20s to about 30, and after age 30, the MRI is combined with mammography. Mm-hmm. So then uh, it's done staggered. Usually if the mammogram is done every winter, the MRI would be done every summer. And so that woman who's at uh, extremely high risk will be tested twice a year. What and about women who decide to have a mastectomy, like Angelina Jolie or something mm-hmm. like that? Right. Is that the extreme decision or is that no, a smart for, decision? No, for women, so there are, so in, in considering the cancer-causing genes, and there are now many of them that we know about, it's important to realize that there are some genes that have a very strong cancer-causing effect and others that are much weaker. So BRCA1 is among the strongest cancer-causing genes. BRCA2, which is its sort of sister gene, which is on a different chromosome, but still they were discovered around the same time and have similar functions. BRCA2 is a weaker cancer-causing gene for the breast. Uh, And so I think that those kinds of nuances have to go into the counseling of women who have inherited one of these gene abnormalities. So um, for uh, women with BRCA1 mutations and even BRCA2 and some other stronger genes, uh, it's not unreasonable to consider a mastectomy. It's not uh, and not a mastectomy on one side, but both, both sides, because that's what really decreases breast cancer risk. But the risk reduction that is achieved with mastectomy is unequaled by any other measure that we can offer at this Mm -hmm, time. mm -hmm. So with surveillance, one can find cancer early, but one cannot avoid cancer with surveillance. It's Uh not prevention, whereas surgery offers prevention. It would be nice if there were medications that we could could give to women who are at high risk for breast cancer with these genetic susceptibility problems. Uh, But at the moment, the medication uh, landscape is actually relatively sparse, and there isn't a lot we can offer in terms of medication. So surgery is really the solution that gets a very dramatic risk, risk reduction. You're listening to At Issue on WBBM. Today we're talking about breast cancer, mortality rates, prevention, survival, and the potential for a cure. I'm Lisa Fielding, and our guests are Tiasha Bra- uh, Bailey, excuse me, Dr. Seema Khan and Angela Waller. And Tiasha, uh, let's talk about something called the Chicago Health Equity Initiative. Is yes. That, that's something you guys are passionate about. Let's go into that. Yes. Yeah, so, um, we know every year a thousand women in Chicago die from breast cancer. We also know that African American women have a higher rate, mortality rate of dying, a faster rate of dying than their counterparts. And so we partner with some major hospital systems in Cook County as well as community health centers to really address the mortality disparities here in Chicago and to look at the systemic gaps. So we know that there are a lot of challenges that women face when they go into the system and there's a lot of fragmentation. A woman can start a 
a woman could start at one hospital and need to be transferred somewhere else, especially if she starts at a community health center. She gets her screening one place. The systems don't talk to each other. And it just delays the um, the, the ability to be able to move through the system um, seamless, seamlessly. So we're partnering with our um, hospital partners and community centers to really pinpoint where along the breast health continuum should we best intervene and how do we really pool our resources and our talents to make a difference. Angela, you were nodding your head very furiously on that. Did you find that in your or your mother's experience? No, I think it's it's the health system itself is like a spaghetti bowl. So not having knowledge of what to do and where to go helps or creates barriers and time delays for women when treatment is of the essence. So it's really important to have those systems in place where the continuum, again, is seamless so that there is no delay in care. Because, for example, it could be a triple triple negative breast cancer diagnosis where the cancer is more aggressive and time is really of the essence. Yes. Dr. Khan, you've really made this your life's work. Tell us a little bit about what you've seen. I don't know. I don't want to use the word progress, but has there been some progress in prevention and eventually a cure in our lifetime? Everyone asks that big question, and it is a big question and lots of pressure on the doctors. But what have you been doing in the last um, five, 10 years, and how have you found differences and how far we can come with this? So I work mostly in prevention, but mm-hmm. I would say before we talk about prevention that there actually has been a lot of movement in curing breast cancer. So so the the scenario has really changed from about 30 years ago when I started, for instance. Uh, so the survival rates have improved for the great majority of women. Uh, there are... Uh, there are treatments that were not available 20 or 30 years ago that are really making a difference uh, to women being cured. And even in the in the type of breast cancer that Angela mentioned, which is one of the sort of recalcitrant areas in breast cancer treatment, triple negative breast cancer, there are in fact new developments that are leading to better treatment and better cures and survival. So there's certainly been improvement on many fronts Uh, In the area of prevention, uh, we have known about medications that can reduce risk of breast cancer, but the risk by about a half. And uh, they're old medicines. The the classical one is tamoxifen that's been around Mm -hmm. for 50 or 60 years now. Uh, Tamoxifen, we know, decreases breast cancer risk by about 50%. So if a woman has a you know, 10-year risk of 5%, for instance, then that risk would be cut to 2.5% by taking tamoxifen for five years. But the problem with tamoxifen, our big challenge in prevention, is that because all medicines have some side effects, there's no free lunch. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these medicines, too, carry some side effects. And although they are not the same as chemotherapy side effects, they are chronic over a longer period of time. So uh, women have been hesitant in general to accept these medications. And and so the acceptance rate for pills like tamoxifen has been lower than we would have expected and certainly lower than we would like in order to gain that impact of using tamoxifen for prevention. We talk about prevention and we think about screenings, but what also as women can we do? Well, men get breast cancer too, of course. Let's all say that as well. But what can we do? 
and our lifestyle. Is there anything that we can do to reduce our our chances? Right. So, uh, so there is certainly a lifestyle um, aspect to breast cancer risk. Uh, and the things that are modifiable, so there are many, many breast cancer risk factors that are not modifiable, which are things like uh, what age do we start our periods and and uh, what age we have our first child. I mean, that's modifiable, I suppose, but most women don't plan their families based on their breast cancer risk. So, But the things that we can change are physical activity, um, diet, so... There is no magical diet that reduces breast cancer risk. It's the same healthy diet that we talk about all the time, mostly plant-based. So I I really like this saying, and I can never remember the name of the chef who said it, but it's it's a chef who said this, uh, eat food. And when I talk to my patients, I always say, and food is not supplements. Mm -hmm. So eat food, mostly plants. And not too much. Okay. So I think that's a great rule for for sort of dietary management of one's life, not just for to protect the breast, but for health overall. Absolutely. Uh, so physical activity, uh, healthy diet. Um, for breast cancer in particular, uh, alcohol use is a risk factor. And so we always say alcohol in moderation. And what I advise my patients is try to keep it at three or four drinks a week or less. And then with each added drink after that, you increase your risk just by a little bit, but still it adds up. Absolutely. Uh, So alcohol in moderation and then uh, avoid postmenopausal weight gain. I mean, that's easier said than done. Yes. But but with attention to physical activity and diet, uh, that should be at least constrained. Mm -hmm. And then for postmenopausal women, the other thing is the use of postmenopausal hormones. There are uh, obviously benefits to those. I mean, the greatest one being avoidance of hot flashes and better sleep and so on. Uh, But uh, if women really need to use them because menopausal symptoms are severe, uh, then we usually advise using the lowest dose for the shortest time and try every couple of years to go off the hormones to see that if you can manage now without hormones. Great advice. Uh, so those are the things that we can change that would affect breast cancer risk. And then one of the students reminded me yesterday, lactation. Ah. So nursing your child, um, and this is actually particularly relevant for African-American women uh, because it's been shown to have an effect in reducing breast cancer risk uh, there. So uh, lactation and and when women ask for how long, uh, it actually adds up across children. So I, you know, if a woman has uh, two children, nurses each of them for for a year each, then that's two years of nursing. And that with that level of nursing, we actually do see a reduction in breast cancer risk. Hmm. And that's in addition to the benefit of uh, losing your pregnancy weight more quickly and the immunity benefits that you give to the child. So it's really important for the baby, obviously, but there are also benefits for the mother. Good information. Tasha, Coleman works year-round in helping women. Also, you have lots of uh, fundraisers, and you have a big one coming up in a couple of weeks. Talk about that, and tell Mm -hmm. us where the money goes uh, when we choose to donate. 
Sure. So Saturday, October 26th, we are having our All Bets on Pink, our annual fundraiser. We are partnering this year with Rivers Casino, so there will be charitable gaming. And that night is a night of celebration where we will honor our survivors, our thrivers, and game changers like Dr. Seema Khan, where we'll be honoring her with the the medical award this year. And it's also a time for us to pay tribute to those we've lost to this disease. We have the pleasure of having a bunch of supporters who support Komen and all that we do. And that night is also about raising money so that we can continue the fight. And our dollars go to support breakthrough research so that we can prevent and cure breast cancer, as well as fund direct services to communities most in need. And so it's we would love to have you. There's still tickets available. And for anyone who's looking to learn more information, they can hop on our website at ComenChicago.org. And I talked about at the beginning, it's one of the most common diagnosed cancers in women. And I think we all either have gone, gone through it, have loved ones, or know someone. Mm-hmm. Angela, kind of talk about your experience and how it's changed your life and how you would advise women who maybe are going through what you did or have and are still kind of lost in the, in the whole situation. Well, it definitely definitely changed my life in terms of making me view life so much differently. I appreciate every day that I wake up and knowing that both my parents die before 50 and they are not here. So it it definitely impacted me in that way. And also just knowing the issues that African-American women have with their breast cancers. And I know that walks and and fundraisers are needed and great. And in my mind, though, I can consider those things micro-level And the macro level for me is policy and research and how do we engage African-American voices in those areas across the continuum. And so that's important to me and how breast cancer has really impacted my life and being more of a an activist, a more vocal voice in in the breast cancer space and helping black women understand that we have a role to play in what happens next in terms of health care and advocacy and policy. And just for women to understand that. You you can do it. It's hard. It's definitely hard for every woman. Every woman's experience is definitely different. But there's so much, as Dr. Khan said, there's so much change that's happening in, in the breast cancer space with technology, with treatment. So there's an opportunity for women to to live and, and not have to just really succumb to a disease that with so much innovation that's going on in the breast cancer space. What was the most surprising thing you found out during your journey? Something that really surprised you or something that you know now that you never knew before? How resilient I am. And even just the fact that how my mother's treatment was and how my treatment was. My mother threw up violently. I didn't throw up once. So it's the the, the treatments are definitely different. Dr. Khan? So I would just like to add that um, the reason we've been able to make so much progress uh, in breast cancer particularly, but also, of course, in other areas of medicine Uh, are people who participate in clinical trials. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if Angela had the opportunity to participate in a trial, but there are many, many women who do, and all of the progress that we've made would not have been possible without women agreeing to participate in trials. And I have to say from my own experience of running clinical trials at Northwestern, I I have always been impressed. I mean, we hear a lot in the literature about how minority representation in trials is not where it needs to be. 
But I have found in my experience that whenever I uh, talk to a woman, particularly women of of African descent, I find that they are, in fact, even more willing to put themselves out there and contribute to the knowledge that will help others in the future. So that realization is very sharp for some people, not as sharp for other people. But it's really a fact of life in American medicine that we have far fewer people participating in clinical Mm. trials in this country than even across the border in Canada and certainly far less than in Europe. So so I think it's uh, hard to put aside personal decision-making and, you know, give up control to participate in a trial. But actually trials are safe and they allow progress. So um, it's it's a very important part of medicine today. Knowledge is power. Get that mammogram, know your family history. Don't ever think you're immune to anything like that. That's probably sums it up, right? Mm. Yes. Thank absolutely. you, ladies, so much. You're all very courageous in Thank your you. in your role in this fight. Our guest at issue this weekend has been Tiasha Bailey with Komen Chicago, Dr. Seaman Khan with Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, and breast cancer survivor and advocate Angela. Waller. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion. I'm Lisa Fielding, WBBM News Radio on 105.9 FM. T Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus ATT and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.